you have a Bible, would you now please open it to the book of 2 Timothy. Our scripture reading today will be chapter 4, verses 3 through 4, as we look at the therapeutic gospel, which is, let me already display my cards, is no gospel at all, it's a false gospel, but I think it's helpful for us to understand what passes for uh, the gospel in our culture today, and I think it's dangerous. It's so, it's so pa- uh, perilously close to what is true, but misses big chunks of reality. You can quote me on that. With that said, I do want to uh, recognize some people who are here today from the great state of Louisiana. We have Sean and Shalene Finnerty, and their daughter Paige, and her new husband Stephen Knight. Wave at me. It's good to see you. Glad you're here. They ruined me. They were the reason I went to Louisiana to play, uh, plant a church. And it wasn't planting the church that ruined me. It was eating Louisiana cuisine. Has ruined me for the rest of my life. It's the best food in the... Yeah, okay. I will. With that said, hear now the word of the Lord as we look to Second Timothy chapter 4. Verses 3 and 4. Well, let's just begin in verse 1. I think it will flow better if we do. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is God's Word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today. Uh, for this text, and we pray that we would learn what it means and we would apply it to our hearts with the aid and help of the indispensable Holy Spirit. We pray that we may see Jesus in Him only and be drawn to Him ever more closely by sitting under the preaching of the Word today. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. And so today we're going to talk about the therapeutic gospel or it could go under a, another title called Your Best Life Now. Not necessarily quoting the person who said that, but uh, that is probably a good way to summarize what the therapeutic gospel is, your best life now. And you're thinking, well, how can that be wrong, Pastor? A lot of what I'm going to talk about is not necessarily bad in, uh, in and of itself, But it is not first things, it is secondary things. And hopefully by the end of the message you'll know what I meant by that. But the Greek word for therapy uh, means to minister or to heal or treat medically. It's related to healing a disease. It's having a good effect on body and mind and contributing to a sense of well-being. And, of course, the word gospel is good news. It's a message that promotes healing. It's a message that tries 
uh, its very best to help people live a life of flourishing and maturity and growth. But it falls short of that goal. The therapeutic gospel, I remember when I was in college, I used to present the four spiritual laws, which was a tool Campus Crusade developed for helping people in college share the gospel with each other. And it began with the first law, which was God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. The therapeutic gospel goes this way. I love me and I have a wonderful plan for my life. And God is part of it if he cooperates and gives me what I really want because he owes me. That's the therapeutic gospel in a nutshell. The therapeutic gospel, and, 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 and so it's helpful to know this, is structured to give people what they want, not change who they are and what they want. Let me repeat that. The therapeutic gospel that you hear so much from televangelists and other sources out there is not so much geared uh, to uh, give, or it is structured to give people what they want, not to change what they want. A few years ago, the Pew Forum released a survey reporting that 65% of Americans who profess Christianity agree with the statement that many religions can lead to eternal life. 65% of people who claim to be Christians agree with the statement that many religions can lead to eternal life. When asked what determines whether someone receives eternal life, the great, greatest number, nearly 40%, answered it was either our actions or a combination of belief and behavior. Half of the respondents believed that atheists who were good, though they made no effort at all to connect with God, would go to heaven. When this was reported to the New York Times, that conservative newspaper in New York, the comment at the Times website expressed amazement and relief that Christians were finally entering the tolerant modern world. This finding should not have come as a surprise to anyone. Several years ago, a sociologist by the name of Christian Smith published Soul Searching, an in-depth look at the religious beliefs of American adolescents. He summarized their faith as moralistic, therapeutic deism. Youth are moralistic because they don't believe that to relate to God they need any kind of radical grace or forgiveness. They feel that anyone who is good and fair to others ought to go to heaven. But the young American's faith also is therapeutic. Most believe the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. This means essentially that people have to determine what is good and right for themselves and live consistently with it. So as a friend of mine says, the uh, therapeutic movement are simply Pharisees with a low bar. Finally, American youth are deistic. They believe God does not need to be particularly involved in your life except when you need him to resolve a problem. To live a good life, there is no need for constant spiritual intervention and support. God has made us, but now God helps those who what? Help themselves. You've heard it. 
And so today I wanted to sort of give you a, an overview of the heart of the message that is heard in lots of pulpits across this land, sadly, and on most television stations every day when it comes to the gospel uh, they preach. Uh, the therapeutic gospel does not, uh, is structured to give people what they want, not to change what they want. It centers exclusively around the welfare of man and temporal happiness. It discards the glory of God in Christ. It forfeits the narrow and difficult road that brings deep human flourishing and eternal joy. The therapeutic gospel accepts and covers for human weakness, seeking it as a given because human nature is just too hard to change. It does not want the king of heaven to come down. It does not attempt to change people into lovers of God and their neighbors, given the truth of who Jesus is, what he is like, and what he does. And so the contemporary therapeutic gospel has for itself a number of different felt needs. The emphasis on the therapeutic gospel is on the concept of felt needs. What are felt needs? It's our wants, our wishes, our hopes, our changes, and results a person deems necessary to have a full life. And the most obvious and instinctual felt needs of the 21st century American are rather remarkable. Listen to the following five needs that everyone seems to agree that they want in our culture. Number one, I want to feel loved for who I am. I want to be pitied for everything I've gone through. And I want to feel intimately understood and I want to be accepted unconditionally. And the universe owes me that. Number two, I want to experience a sense of personal significance and meaningfulness. I want to be successful in my career. I want to know my life matters. I want to have impact. I want to say that I count. Number three, I want to gain self-esteem. I want to be affirmed that I am okay. To be able to assert my opinions and desires. Number four, I want to be entertained to feel pleasure at the endless stream of performances that delight my eyes and tickle my ears. Boredom is the great sin. It is the anticipation of death. Number five, I want a sense of adventure, excitement, action, and passion so that I experience life as thrilling and moving. This is the heart of the therapeutic gospel. It is man-centered. It is focused upon elevating man. There's really not much of God in it. And the modern middle-class version of the therapeutic gospel takes its cues from these particular families of desires. We might say that the focus is on psychological felt needs rather than on physical needs because there aren't that many in our culture as there were during difficult eras of poverty and social circumstances. In this new gospel, the great evils to be redressed do not call for any fundamental change of direction in the human heart. There is no repentance required in the fundamental gospel. It isn't that you need to be aware that you're destroying yourself and you need to wake up and you need to 
turn around and you need to return to God, that's not in that gospel. Repentance is unheard of. That's an archaic word that the Puritans used. We don't bother with it anymore. Instead, the problem lies for me in my sense of rejection from other people. In my corrosive experience of life's vanity, in my nervous sense of self-condemnation, in the inmost threat of, or imminent threat of boredom, if my music is turned off or my uh, internet no longer is up. And so, there's also a lot of fussy complaints when a long, hard road lies ahead. These are today's significant felt needs that the gospel is supposed to be bent to serve. Jesus and the church exist to make you feel loved, significant, validated, entertained, and most of all, charged up. The gospel makes better distressing symptoms in my life. It makes me feel better. The logic of the therapeutic gospel is Jesus for me who meets individual um, desires and massages my psychic aches. That is the therapeutic gospel. In other words, it is self-referential. It's all about me, what I want, what I desire, what I long for, and uh, very little reference at all to the God who saves. Very little at all. Now, some of these desires in a person's heart are not bad in and of themselves, in their proper place. But there's more to it. Uh, in today's therapeutic, uh, therapeutic gospel, the medical way of looking at the world is metaphorically extended to these psychological desires. In other words, we've turned from the medical practice dealing with bodily disease, hurts, aches, pains, things that need to be done to fix the person to the psychological aspects. And by the way, I'm not anti-psychological. Don't think that I am. I have respect for it. I agree that psychology bears within it amazing ability to describe uh, the phobias, the fallenness, the struggles that we all have. They're greatly equipped in it as a descriptive science. Where I differ with psychology is how to fix it how to appropriately help it in a way that is conclusive. And so I'm not knocking psych, but I am knocking the therapeutic gospel because you'll hear more in a moment why. So the definition of disease bypasses the sinful human heart. You are not the agent of your deep, deepest problems. You are merely a sufferer and victim of unmet needs. That's how most people see themselves in our world today. We're not struggling with something as archaic as sin. We're not destroying ourselves by disobeying God, but rather we are victims of people's mistreatment of us. And so we become ultimately victims with a capital V. That is our identity. And we need somehow reparation. We need somehow to be paid back for our suffering. You're not the agent of your dip, dip, uh, deepest problems. You're merely a sufferer and victim of unmet needs. And so it skips over any concept of a sin-bearing Savior. Uh, repentance from unbelief, willfulness, and wickedness is not the issues. Sinners are never called to make a U-turn and to a new life indeed. Such a gospel massages self-love. 
There is nothing in its inner logic that will ever make you want to love God more and to love any other person besides yourself. This therapeutic gospel may often mention the word Jesus, but he has morphed into the meter of your needs, not the Savior from your sins. It corrects Jesus' work for us. And the therapeutic gospel turns Jesus into a cosmic vending machine. So, let's talk about the once and for all gospel, point two. The real gospel is good news. It's good news of the Word made flesh, of the sin-bearing Savior, of the resurrected Lord of glory. I am the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. This Christ turns the world upside down. The Holy Spirit rewires our sense of felt need as one of the prime effects of His inworking presence and power. You see, the problem with us is in the disordered motivational level of the human heart. It's not, it's why we do what we do. It's why we want what we want. That is the deepest problem. All of this other stuff only polishes the surface, never gets at what's really wrong with us and the kind of help we need. The Holy Spirit works in us as a power and presence of the Lord. And because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we keenly feel a definite set of needs that are very different when God comes into our lives and when we understand that we stand or fall under his gaze. My instinctual cravings are replaced, something quickly, but usually and always gradually, by the growing awareness of true life and death needs. Let me list for you quickly a few of these life and death needs. Number one, I need mercy above all else. Do you say that about yourself? Do you understand that about yourself? Is that good news to you to cry out, I need mercy more than I need my next breath? What is mercy? God not giving us what we deserve, but rather giving us what we can never deserve. It is God extending to us kindness and, and uh, passing over our sins, as it were, because they've been laid upon his son. The prayer, Lord, have mercy upon me, is the prayer of real Christianity. For your name's sake, pardon my iniquity, for it is very great. The real gospel always talks about our sins and our need for mercy. It doesn't flatter the human heart. The Bible doesn't flatter us in our fallen state, as Dan mentioned earlier. The Bible doesn't airbrush. It doesn't paint over our flaws. The Bible is exposing, it's real, it's bright light, it reveals, it exposes, it shows us the brokenness of our hearts. It shows us our disordered motivations in the inside. The second once-for-all gospel desire and need is I want to learn wisdom and unlearn willful self-preoccupation. Nothing you desire compares with Wisdom. What is wisdom? Wisdom is learning to see and interpret life from God's point of view. How do we learn to see and understand life and interpret 
all of life around me through God's point of view. You do that through engaging with the Word of God. Do you spend time between Sundays in your Bible? Do you read your Bible? Do you apply what you read to your own heart? Or do you apply it to everyone else in your family or on the job that you work with? Rather, are you asking God for wisdom to be able to make sense of the phenomena before us? Are you able to interpret it and classify it and put it in alignment through God's Word? That is a, one of the greatest needs you have. You're not smarter than God. I know that because I used to think I was smarter than God. Some of you really deeply inside think you're smarter than God. How do I know? Because you reject His Word. You don't believe his word carries the freight. You don't believe it has any authority. You just think it's something men wrote down. And it is true that men did write. The very few dictation parts of the Bible. Ten commandments would be one. But the word of God is alive and powerful and sharp. And it uh, arrests our souls. And it brings uh, God to bear upon our hearts. And so one of the great needs we have in life is not only the mercy of God, we need the wisdom of God to be able to make decisions for ourselves and our families and those we love. The third great need that we all have is I need to learn to love both God and my neighbor, not myself. I already know how to love myself. That's my problem. And what I need to learn how to do is love both God and my neighbor. I don't even know how to love, and you don't either. God has to teach us how to love. We lost that capacity in the fall and became curved in on ourselves. Everything became about us. Our heart is curved in upon itself. Um, Martin Luther's famous phrase when he talked about the heart being curved in upon itself. And the only thing that can curve our heart back out toward God and one another is the gospel of Jesus Christ, which heals our sin, which causes us to be accepted in Christ, and then we're free to look at ourselves. And the gospel has the power in itself to change me from being a completely self-seeking, self-preoccupied human being to actually recognize there are others in the universe besides me. And I'm perfectly willing to admit before God and all of you that I struggle with selfishness. It's not, a, it's not like once you become a preacher you resign that and it's done. Selfishness is a huge issue. But you can't be self-centered and love anyone because love is getting out of yourself, going out of yourself toward others. The goal of our instruction, the Bible says, is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. I long for God's name to be honored, for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done on earth. One of the great desires a Christian has, once they understand the gospel, is you long for God's name to be honored. You long for his glory to be seen. You long for others to know him. Is that you? Does that describe you? Are you a person who hungers, who longs for God's name to be honored, does it grieve your soul when people take the name of God in vain, when people curse God? Does that grieve your soul? Does mine. Do you long for the kingdom to come? Are you tired of the mess 
Are you tired of living in between the times in which the kingdom has come in an inaugurated fashion, but it will come completely in the future, and we live in the tension of that kingdom come, but not completely come, not fully realized, the already of it, but the not yet of it is even larger, and we live in that, and we long for God's will to be done on earth as it's done in heaven. Is that in your soul? Do you love that? Do you want that? That's a fruit of believing the real gospel. I want Christ's glory. I want his loving kindness, his goodness to be seen on this earth and to fill the earth as much as the water fills the ocean. I see more and more uh, in our culture uh, wars over things like Christmas. And in one sense, I'm not that upset about it, but in another sense, it's the only thing we have in our culture that even points to the person of Christ. And he is to the Christian a Lord and a Savior, and we love him. And we want people to know his glory, to see it, to be drawn to him. Their lives are missing unspeakably uh, tons of reality by not knowing this Lord Jesus Christ. I need to change me. I need God to change me from who I am by instinct, choice, and practice. That is a need in the heart of a regenerated person. I need God to change me from who I am by instinct, who I am by choice, who I am by practice. You see, a self-centered person is looking out at everyone else, and they are the problem. I'm never the problem. It's everyone else, and I'm just a big, fat victim. But the real believer sees that the change that needs to occur first is with me. I'm the one that needs to be transformed. I'm the one who needs to change. One of the first things I do in marriage counseling is to try to help see the wife and the husband both to see that they both need changes in their own hearts and in their own lives. It's easy for me to spot what's wrong with you. I can see it as clear as day. I am a professional at picking out the faults and flaws of every single person. And I am blind as a blindfolded mole in a cave when it comes to seeing my own faults. But the real Christian understands that change needs to start with me. It's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's me. It is. It's me. You're looking at me like you don't believe it. It is me. And it is you. And that's what the Christian understands. I want him to deliver me from my obsessive self-righteousness. I want him to slay my lust for self-indication. So... That is what I desire, that I may feel my utter need for the mercies of Christ and that I may learn to treat other people gently. I need to be delivered from those things. Self-righteousness, to slay my lusts for self-vindication. You know, it's hard sometimes where when people mistreat you or abuse you or say something uh, about you that is not true, and everybody knows it's not true, but to allow the Lord to take care of your reputation and you yourself not having to fight for it is sometimes very difficult. 
but I want the Lord to deliver me from those things. I need God's mighty and intimate help in order to will and do those things that last to eternal life rather than squandering my life on vanities. I need his help. I need intimate help to will to do the things that please him and not throw my life away on that which is empty and futile. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. All is vanity. Everything is vanity, the writer says. Now, that's a rather pessimistic view. And if you got into the book, you would understand what he's getting at. But life outside of Christ, life outside of the power of the Holy Spirit within me, throwing myself into that stuff is empty. It's fruitless. It's vanity. I want to learn how to endure hardship and suffering in hope, having my faith simplified, deepened, and purified. Now, I'm not calling on people to be uh, masochistic here, but I, I have to learn how to endure suffering. Why? Because I'm going to suffer. You see, this is what cuts against the therapeutic gospel. The therapeutic gospel is like heaven on earth. I want heaven now where we ain't home yet. We do not yet live in heaven. And so life is going to be hard in different places for every one of us. We're going to suffer. And that's normative. That's not something unusual. That's not something unexpected. We are not exempt from that because we're in Christ. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Suffering is written into the fabric of who we are. And we need our faith, which is the means by which we appropriate everything God has for us, deepened and purified. I need to learn to worship, to delight, to trust, to give thanks, to cry out, to take refuge, and to hope in Jesus alone. I need to learn to pray. I need to learn to worship. I need to learn to give thanks. I need to know how to go to him as my refuge, as my rock, as my fortress. I want the resurrection to eternal life. We groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. Some of you who are young and at your prime, <laughs> you don't struggle so much with wanting a new body. Well, just live. Just live longer. And you will find yourself longing for that new body. It will come if you live that long. Guaranteed will happen. I need God himself. Show me your glory. Do you understand that that's what we're made for? That's what we're hardwired for? Is God himself? Because the gospel is God himself coming to us. God himself covenanting with us. God himself knowing us, being intimate with us. In my heart, more than any other thing in the universe, I need that. And I need it consistently. Are you growing in your knowledge of God? Are you growing in your desire to, for Him to show you His glory? Are you saying, come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, I want to see your glory. Make it happen. Make it so, Father of mercies. So prayer expresses that great sense of felt need that is in the sense of the Lord having mercy upon us. Now, point number three, good gifts but bad gods. All I want to say about that is 
The thing offered by the contemporary therapeutic gospels are difficult to interpret because the odor of self-interest and self-obsession clings closely to a wish list of I want and need and must have blank. But a good gift doesn't make a good God. A good gift leads you to the giver. And the giver is always foremost in the heart. And so what I wanted to do in closing with this message is look at the five elements I identified with the therapeutic gospel in a new way, sort of as a critique, and then we'll be done. Number one, need for love. It is certainly a good thing for us to know that we are both known and loved. We crave that. God, who searches the thoughts and intention of, of our hearts, also sets his steadfast love upon us. However, all of this is radically different from the instinctual craving to be accepted for who I am. Christ's love's love comes to me pointedly and personally despite who I am. Let me repeat that. I need the steadfast love of the Lord upon me. However, all of this is radically different from the instinctual craving to be accepted for who I am. Christ's love comes pointedly and personally despite who I am. You are accepted for who Christ is because of what he did and what he does and what he will do. God truly accepts you. God is for you who can be against you. But what we need is not self-esteem. What we need is Christ-esteem. Our problem is craving self-esteem. We need Christ-esteem. That's who we need. And so... Knowing that, in doing this, God does not inform, uh, affirm and endorse what we are like. Rather, he sets about changing you into a fundamentally different kind of person. In the real gospel, you feel deeply known and loved, but your relentless need for love has been overthrown. Because now you're home. Now you've found, or been found, as it were, by the love of God. Number two, the need for significance. These are felt needs in our culture. It's a good thing for the works of your hands to be established. It's a good thing to build gold, silver, and precious stones and not wood, hay, and stubble. It is good when you do what you do with your life truly counts and when your works follow you into eternity. Vanity, futility, and ultimate insignificance register the curse upon our work life. Even mid-course, not just when we retire, when we die, or on the day of judgment, but the real gospel inverts the order of things presupposed by the therapeutic gospel. The craving for impact and significance, one of the typical youthful lusts that boil up within us, is merely idolatrous when it acts as director of operations in the human heart. God does not meet our need for significance. He meets our need for mercy and deliverance from our obsession with our personal significance. Do you see? Do you see how the gospel is counterintuitive to every aspect of the therapeutic gospel. God delivers us from our obsession with the need 
for personal significance in his mercy. And when we turn from enslavement and we turn to God, then uh, everything we do, our works, do have personal significance. In other words, if we chase the things we think we need rather than going to God, we'll never get them. But when we go to God, we get the very things we really need. You never get it chasing it apart from God. Never, ever. Need for self-esteem, self-confidence, and self-assertion to gain a confident sense of your identity is certainly a good thing. And the book of Ephesians is filled with what I like to call grace identity statements because the Spirit motivates a life of contagious faith and love. You are gods among the saints, the chosen ones, adopted sons, beloved children, citizens, slaves, soldiers, part of his workmanship, his wife, his dwelling place. Every one of these are in Christ. No aspect of your identity is self-centered, feeding our self-esteem. Our opinion of ourselves is far less important than God's opinion of us. And accurate self-assessment is derivative of God's assessment. Do you see how this world is twisted? It's backwards. It is backwards. I worked as a juvenile probation officer in Dallas, Texas for four years. And so somebody came up with the brilliant idea that the best way to help these young criminal minds, some who had been arrested as many as 17 to 20 times, was to sit them down and help them get better self-esteem. <laughs> and I, 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 you know, I thought, well, maybe they have something here. So I went through all of the training, I went through all of the material, and I'm not saying it wasn't helpful in any way, but I'm saying it missed the point. It was a splendid exercise in missing the point. They needed something outside of themselves, not something within them. They had nothing within them. They needed to be God-centered and not man-centered. And uh, an accurate self-assessment of your life is uh, important. True awareness of yourself connects to high esteem for Christ. Great confidence in Christ correlates to a vote of fundamental no confidence in and about yourself. God nowhere replaces diffidence by people-pleasing and self-assertiveness. In fact, to assert your opinions and desires often marks you as a fool. Only as you're freed from the tyranny of your opinions and desires are you free to assess them accurately and to express them appropriately. And so confidence, what is confidence? We're always telling people you need more confidence. And I understand what we're saying when we're saying that. But confidence for the Christian does not come in yourself. It comes in God. And being confident in God makes you a very confident person. Need for pleasure. The gospel promises endless joyless, joyous, not joyless, joyous experience, drinking from the rivers of of his delight, the description of God's presence. And that is what we will know and enjoy as we worship him forever, true pleasures beyond our wildest existence or knowledge that we've ever known. We don't need to be entertained, but we absolutely need to learn how to worship with all of our hearts. Finally, need for excitement and adventure to participate in the kingdom of Christ is to play a part within the greatest action-adventure story ever told. But the paradox of redemption again turns the whole world upside down. 
The real adventure takes the path, listen carefully, of weakness, struggle, endurance, patience, small kindnesses done well. The road to excellence and wisdom is very unglamorous. Other people might take better vacations and have a more thrilling marriage than yours. The path of Jesus calls forth more grit than thrill. He needed endurance far more than he needed excitement, and so do we. We say yes and amen to all of the good gifts, but get first things right. Get first things right. Seek the kingdom, and all these things will be added unto you. So Matthew says in his gospel, he calls us to radical repentance. Bob Dylan, many of you know who he is, described the therapeutics alternative in a remarkable phrase. You think God's just an errand boy to satisfy your wandering desires. A cosmic vending machine. Get first things first. Get the gospel of the incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and glory. Live the gospel of repentance, faith, and transformation into the image of the Son. Proclaim the gospel when eternal life and eternal death are revealed in the coming day of Christ. So which gospel are you going to live? Which gospel will you share with others? Which needs will you awaken and address in others? Which Christ will be your people's Christ? Will it be a little Christette? who massages felt needs, or the Christ who turns the world upside down and makes all things new. The difference between our felt needs and our real needs are, there's a huge chasm between them. But coming to Christ, and I've been a Christian since I was 19, and I'm older than that now, so it's been a lot of years. But I can tell you what, I'm just now discovering that what I always thought I really wanted in term, and really needed in terms of life is backwards. Who I really need is Jesus. And that's who you really need is Jesus. And you say, well, Pastor, that's just simplistic. Yes, it is. It's simple, but not simplistic. It's simple because it's every, He is everything to you. And you will find life ultimately to be a grand disappointment and exercise in missing the point if you don't come to Christ. So what I've tried to do today is to help us reset the gospel by understanding it's radically different than feeling good. It was uh, the great uh, writer Mark Twain who said the following in his diary. Got up today, it was Sunday, I went to church, and I actually felt better when I left than I did when I went in. That was a rare thing for Mark Twain. It's not about feeling better. It's about meeting Jesus. Let us pray. Father, I do pray today that you would open the eyes of blindness that we all have. You would soften the heart of hardness that we all have. Some of us are very angry at you. Some of us are very resistant toward you. Some of us are very proud and don't want to admit that we need anything. Some of us are just lost. And I pray that you would show us the beauty, glory, suitability, and attractiveness of Jesus for our souls. 
and draw us to his feet and cause us to cry out, Lord, have mercy upon me, the sinner. This we pray. Now, fathers, we continue to worship you today. May we give as people who believe the real gospel, not in order to get anything back from you that you owe us, but rather to express to you our gratitude and confidence in you and to give because it pleases you and it honors your name. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.